Dan, welcome back to the Change Your Filter podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. I guess not welcome back. We've chatted before. We've we've been talking over the last year or so. But um, last time we talked, I made a note of something that um, as I looked back at that conversation, I couldn't remember the context. So I'm going to start there. You mentioned to me that uh, a conversation in, I think, 2015 with Russell Fur changed your life. Am I making reference to a real life thing that happened? That was, I think that was a reference to him having said that his contact with me changed his life. Ah, there we go. I got to take better notes. So do you remember why he would have said that? So Russell had just ventured out. I think he had been spending time like many, like many contractors do working with others. And he had ventured out on his own. He joined Nexstar, came to an event, which for which I happened to have been the facilitator and whatever I said or did in that environment. And this, I, I, I feel like this has happened um, more times than I can count where people yeah. reach out to me years later. I just, I just had a Facebook message from a, from a friend I haven't seen for a decade and, and same thing, you know, Hey, thank you for what you did. And, and, and it's in passing and he, Russell took the medicine, he did the work and, and that's always the case. You know, I, I don't, I don't change anyone's life. First of all, that's not a thing I'm qualified to do or even to take even a, a, a modicum of credit for. Yeah. However, when he sat in the room and took the medicine, did the work, um, he got the results and, um, and his life subsequently has absolutely changed. He's, he's, I think he's created a monster business and done just extremely well for himself. And, and that's, yeah. that's, you know, someone who takes the coaching and does the work. So. Yeah, he'd be an interesting person to connect with for you and I both for a couple of reasons. I, I don't know if you knew this, but he sold his business, I don't know, a couple of yeah. months ago, six or seven yeah. months ago. And it would be curious to know, because so much of that is going on in so many different ways and forms, yeah. um, what that is doing to, gosh, the psyche, what it's doing to self-worth, what it's doing to validate or devalidate what it, I mean, just the impact that it's having. Once you, once the the bank account thing is settled out, like that's behind you and becomes normal. Like what do you do with your time? What do you do with your energy? What do you do with your passion? And it's like a whole, I mean, this is a good problem to have, but right. it's a whole nother set of problems you got to solve. <laughs> like, right. Am, right. I'm 45 years old. What do I do with my life now? I've, yeah. When earning an, earning an income is no longer a thing I even have to consider like ever right. again. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's a very interesting conversation to have with people. And I've, of course, I have a number of friends in the industry, lots who have sold and worked mm -hmm. with some of these companies hand in hand. And, um, it's, it's just remarkable to see the the cycles that they go through mm -hmm. after they get through a, you know, um, a sale to whomever, Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a loss of identity in a lot of cases. It's, it's almost brings on a bit of a crisis stage in some folks. Right. It's, yeah. you know, especially when it's your name on the business or you, you've grown up in it or whatever the case, you know, most of the time people who are selling these businesses are intensely emotionally linked to this thing and, and linked at the, at the root of identity right? where, where I am the business that I built. Right. Yeah. And now I sell that and, and someone else takes control of it. And, and while the payout feels good and eventually is necessary, I mean, you know, it's it, the the uh, the story is always the same. The money was so good, I couldn't say no to it. Right. And then, and then the fallout is, man, I, it this feels different than I thought. You know. Yeah. How often are you finding? Um, I don't know if regret is the right word, but um, how often are you finding people that are just either let down or just it's different than they thought it would be. Well, different than they thought it would be, I think is nearly a hundred percent. I mean, from the folks who I, who you speak with, um, it's just, it's, it's a different game when you, when you get, um, other shareholders involved and you mm -hmm. have forever been the shareholder or, you know, the president at the top of the food chain, you make all the decisions and, yeah. and now suddenly decisions are, are, are being, you know, handed to you in a sense, um, right. that's, it's, you, you know, you're suddenly you become an employee again. For those who've sold and stayed, right? That's and that's just a difficult. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine myself functioning. I'd be a terrible employee. I, I would be. I'd just be. I'd be awful. I'd be like, no, no, you yeah. can't do it like that. You got to do it like this. And and those worlds, especially those private equity worlds, the the folks who operate those organizations, they just have a different understanding of how this thing functions as a group of companies, and that's a different management style. And I just need to manage my own shop, right? And yeah. um, 
they're not wrong in how they're they're functioning it, but it is one hundred percent different than what what people expect. And and some people, I think I this is not a unique perspective for me. I read this somewhere, and I think it really rings true. But some people rise to the level of business owner because under no other circumstance would they be employable by anybody else because there's yes. <laughs> too yes. many good things and bad things, whatever those things are, that lead yes. them to a position where they're in charge. And um, I don't know. It just kind of it's an interesting time to be in a business and own it and sell it and evaluate yeah. the value of it. So be interesting yeah. to see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Russell's a good guy. That'd be a, that'd be a real interesting conversation. I should reach out to him. Yeah. I actually just saw it um, on Facebook. I think he's opened another business and I saw some big heavy sure. machinery involved and I was like, that sounds about right. So yep. was unemployed for four seconds and got yeah, bored. And- yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I've always wanted to do it, not to go completely off the rails here, but I've always wanted to do like one of those hidden voice confessionals where I bring on people post acquisition and I hide their voice and identity and I ask them questions and, and I let owners hear like, what is it like when on, you know, Wednesday you get this amazing deposit into your bank account. And then on Tuesday, someone asks you for your forecast and you're like, what do you mean forecast? It's not even 75 degrees here. What, what do you, what do you mean forecast? It's not hot yet. Well, that doesn't matter when you're, you know, messing with investor money and it's just a different yeah. ball game. So it is, it is, it anyhow. is. And it's, it, it kind of, it, there's a high of the, of, of the, the acquisition point, the, the deposit into the bank account, as you said, mm-hmm. then, then a little bit of a low as they adjust to a brand new world and just entirely different set of rules. And then I think as time wears on, they settle into a space where it comes back up and they're like, okay, I get this. I understand my place now and I can, and I can function and operate. The conversation has come up over the last couple of months where people are like, where is this going? How's it going to play out? Is it all going to roll up into to major retailers or how will this play out? And I'm no economist, um, but I, you know, kind of, I guess I understand what happened on the last phase of, of um, using air quotes consolidation. Where do you see things going with all of these uh, companies that have been purchased by different groups in a very fast and aggressive manner? Um, where do you see that going in the near and short term and long term? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I, I the, the short answer is I have I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think if past if past consolidations are any indication of of this one, and again I'll say consolidations in in air quotes, um, that you know this the bubble will burst at some point and it'll settle back out and. Some of the companies that were performing at a very high level will will drift down, and there'll be some some sell-offs, and you know some owners will buy their companies back in five years. That's that's entirely a possibility. Sure. Um, yeah. I think what's different about this one than what we've seen before is the types of businesses that are available in this in this space, mm-hmm. where in the you know, let's say the the last roll-up or the last consolidation, you know, they were buying five and $10 million operations. And those were, those were big, those were, were monsters back then. Well, well, now if you don't have 20 million, you're, I don't know that you're really being talked to very much by, by very many of these, you know, these, these equity groups. Um, and so the, the types of businesses that are being purchased are much bigger. And I think that makes them more stable and more resilient to the change and the, you know, shifting leadership and that sort of thing. Um, so, so I, I mean, I, and, and, um, the skill with which the the shareholders operate and bring the right leadership teams to the table and you know and build what it is they're set out to build. Um, there's there's some determination, some skill, and some some foresight there that that uh, I think bears respecting. Yeah. That we will watch this unfold and it'll become something um, that I don't think any of us predict. Will, will we ever be rid of the mom and pop shop? Never. I don't think that's ever going to go away. It's too easy to be a plumber and then and then buy a truck and then you know have enough calls to keep myself busy. That's that's yep. that's a fairly easy business model to get to. It's not an easy business to be in, but it's there's very little barrier to entry to being that person in a in a particular marketplace. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so I don't I don't know that he goes away, but yeah, yeah. I I hang on to something that Dave Geiger said and uh, from Horizon, and that is. Like regardless of the multiples and all the different variation in the market and consolidation, like all the things that can happen and will happen and have happened, these are good long-term investments. Yes. And it'll always be like that. And I just, I keep reminding myself of that to kind of get 
make sense of the urgency and make sense of the market and, and also to yeah. play a long game too and yeah. and short game i mean it's just yeah. a good market um yeah. i have one more random question before we get into i want to share for the people who don't know you which is probably like three of the people listening because i think a lot of people in my <laughs> audience probably know you you know now you're a business owner and you're sitting in that yes. seat and you're physically sitting in that seat today Charles, charlton mm-hmm. hill you've coached hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of business leaders and and different companies over the years, coast to coast, two countries. Who are the one or two companies as you're operating your business now that you look to and strive to be or admire or um, really, you know, set the standard for what you think is possible in this industry? Oh my goodness. You're going to polarize me to the entire world here. You can name as many (laughs) as you want. Who are here? Uh, we'll do it this way. Who are some of that you can recall the top of your head? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you one or two. Yeah. There's a few, a few folks that you know, to whom I I fall back and and say, um, you know, here's how this person would have done it. Let me. Um, I would I would have to say for sure, um, Annie Hour, Wyatt Hepworth, mm-hmm. um, and Jeremy and his team. Um, what they've built there is just something that's uh, absolutely remarkable. Um, Brad Casebeer and um, his team at Radiant, who are just recently on John Oliver tonight. Did you see all that? That was no. I didn't oh my tell goodness. me more about that. You need you need to get Brad on your on your podcast. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Brad, and you're and you're welcome. <laughs> I'm gonna get you on a podcast. So, so Brad does has for years done toilet um, comedy as as part of his advertising yep. shtick, and he's yep. it, it's very effective. And it started very with good. a storefront. He had a tiny little store. He was, you know, and he had a display window, so he would set up a toilet as as the star of some movie theme that was just being released. He did this forever. He did it very well, very creative human being. Then they started doing ads and commercials and video with it. And they did all this. And and somehow it got John Oliver found out and, and saw a couple of these and issued a challenge to Brad. And then Brad accepted the challenge and they produced this thing and it showed on John Oliver tonight. So it's, it's, I mean, for our industry to hit that level of notoriety, that's, that, that's pretty special. Brad's a unique, he's a one in a million human being. That guy's something else. So I live in a cave. I know who Brad is. Who's John Oliver? Why don't I know who that is? And why John, should I know? John Oliver tonight. He's a, he's a late night um, comedy host. Hold on. Oh, if it's, if it's late night, yeah, you can count me out as any part of that addressable yeah. audience if it's past 10 o'clock. British, British American comedian, writer, producer. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bet everyone knows him but me and that's... Oh, well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I yeah, I just saw Top Gun like six weeks ago, the first one. So oh wow, I'm, yeah, I'm a little you, behind on. You are in a cave. <laughs> I am in a cave. Um, you know, Brad has been mentioned to me by several people too. Are there any others you want to throw in that mix while you've got the wheels turning? Yeah. Um, well, you said Dave Geiger, of course. Yeah. You know, I've I've spent a little time with his teams as well. Um, a remarkable leader. Uh, what he's what he's accomplished. Um, where else am I modeling my, my business after you put me on the spot? I mean, I've seen a thousand of these shops, um, I'm pretty close to, um, uh, perfect home services in Chicago. That's a company that mm-hmm. kind of flared up and went, you know, big, quick. And a lot of friends there in, in Chicago do some work with them. And, um, that's a great company as well. Um, Justin Carroll ran that one for years. Jeff Belk, the longtime friend and, what he did with Plumline in yeah. Denver in that market years ago, um, really kind of on the front edge of this thing as it was taken off. Yeah. Um, this this whole consolidation thing. So yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of these folks that I still reach out to from time to time and and uh, talk to. And then of course, you know, if I if I need help in the business, I do I do what uh, what most of my friends do, and they reach out to your next our business coaches. <laughs> right. Know, yeah. What do I do? Yeah. Good. Good. So you spent I think what 16 or 17 years at Nextstar, but that's not where it started. Yeah. So. How'd you get into the space? And and let's talk about uh, what led you to where you are today. I, I, I love this. Thank you. Um, the uh, There's a great little exercise I do when I, when I start um, a training program with a group of technicians. You know, I've done this around the country with a bunch of them. It's more of late that I've, that I've built this in. And I, I get everyone to tell their, a little bit of their origin story. Like, how did you get, like, go back to the beginning and, and put, put your finger on the spot where you, where you realized you, you just got into the trades. Mm-hmm. Right where this this whole career thing took off, and and when I do that in a in an exercise with a group of people, it's a beautiful thing to see. And and I, I draw out this 
I draw out this uh, picture that, you know, you think about 30 or 50 people in a room, each of them having this origin story as far back as, you know, mine 30 years ago, um, where it started and how we all magically found ourselves to that one spot in that room. And there are no coincidences in the world. There's Mm -hmm. not no amount of orchestration that any of us could have put together to cause that ultimate result to happen. So here we are, the 50 of us. Yeah. This is all we have. This is where we are for whatever reasons, and and it deserves our full attention. So it's it's a nice way of bringing it. And mine goes back to September of 1993. So you know it's 30 years in yep. in a minute, and it, and it was with this company with the logo I'm wearing today, um, Tarleton and Hill. And I was sitting in my basement suite with a with a friend from high school, and and her dad worked at um, at Tarleton and Hill had been there forever. Um, his name was Abe. Um, a mentor of mine in in so many ways, uh, aspired to have a fraction of the character that man had <laughs> and uh, and do what he did. Um, and so we're sitting in the basement. She says, you need a job. I'm going to call my dad. So she calls Abe, says, hey, Abe, Dan needs a job. She hands me the phone. It's a handset and a you know, physical phone. I was dialing from my <laughs> landline yeah. in my in my basement suite because I'm, I'm a dinosaur. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's what my kids think my kids say i was born in you dad you were born in the 19s which nothing <laughs> nothing makes you feel 100 years old quicker than that yeah <laughs> you know? so um, true so, so i pick up the phone abe asks me two questions do you have steel toe boots no but i can get some yep do you have a hammer and a tape measure yep that i have it's like all right bring all that we'll see you tomorrow morning and come at 10 to 8 and that was it i showed up at quarter to eight the next morning and uh, that's that's where my job got started i was on my way to, I had I was enrolled at a technical college here in Canada to to become an electronics engineer, get my two year certificate, and then I was going to go on to you know to get my my degree in electronics engineering. Um, chose that class because my high school counselor said that's the most mathematically difficult thing you can do, and and you should challenge yourself with it. So, yeah. so I did, and then I never went to college. That's the, you know as the story goes, I I got started with this. My my first day of work. I got driven out to a, a home in a neighborhood as I didn't. I, so, so I had no idea what a sheet metal mechanic did, what a oh, yeah. HVAC company was. I had just no background in this at all. My dad is an automotive mechanic. Um, so I understood sequence of operation and I could troubleshoot and I had some basic, you know, I had some to- like hand skills with tools and that sort of thing. But this industry was like completely Greek to me. He drives me to the house, walks me down to the basement. We say hi to the homeowners. There's a guy down there with a furnace he's installing and he's working on stuff. And he hands me some snips and I start cutting something as, as instructed. And that was day one. And I um, realized at the end of that day that we had made a pretty substantial difference in that the customer's home. And they were super thankful. And and that was an instant high. That was an immediate reward and a sense of, of gratification and fulfillment. I, I did something. I accomplished it. It's done. Tomorrow we do it again. And then I just got hooked on it. I was like, I'm not leaving this. They, they, they took good care of me. It was a great company. And then maybe back then when you got a job at Charlton and Hill in this little marketplace that I'm in, um, people told you, you know, Dan, you won the lottery as far as jobs are concerned. Don't mess that up. Right. And I, and I now fast forwarding and, and foreshadowing, I endeavored to make that true of the company. I, I have the privilege of leading today, right. That people get here and they won the lottery, hang in there. Don't mess it up. <laughs> Story of the prodigal son too, going back. And the fact that you the guy who introduced you, his name is Abe, doesn't make it any less biblical. So uh, sure there's a lot, in, a lot in between there. So, yeah. so how, so you're probably 19 or 20, I guess maybe even younger than 18 or so. And how long did you work there before you went on to go to Nexstar and how'd that go down? Well, so that's, you know, all part of the journey is as I was working here, um, every time they would ask, you know, like there was an opportunity to, to, try a different role. I did service that way. They just say, Hey, we need somebody to help with some service calls. I just volunteered and went. I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Um, the same thing happened with sales. When I, when, a, when one of our estimators left the business an opening appeared, I said, you know, Hey, let me, let me have a, let me have a crack at it. Yeah. Um, so they did. And I, and I was, I was successful at it. 1998, I did 1.2 million in, in what was a 60,000 person marketplace and a, and a, probably a $3,500 average ticket back then. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of closed deals. That's like, <laughs> 8 million now in yeah, a big city. It's gotta be, it's gotta be that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was a lot. And, um, and then at the end of the year, I was told, well, we didn't make any money, you know, it's collectively, mm-hmm. it's a big company and there's a lot of stuff going on, uh, but yeah. the departments that we were in, you know, just, we, we didn't make any money as, as that's the oldest story in contracting. 
yeah. did a lot of work, had a lot of success and did all the math. And we said, oh shoot, there's nothing left at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went looking for help and through the leadership team that was in next, that was at uh, Charlton Hill at the time, found our way to, to Nexstar. I made some phone calls. I got tasked with the idea of vetting through several different best practices organizations like Nexstar, which was Contractors 2000 at the time. So I made phone calls. I spent uh, two and a half hours on the phone with Greg Nemi, who was the president. Um, he just took my call at a moment's notice. And, you know, we, we talked to him, talked to a bunch of Canadian um, members, and uh, we went and visited some of them. And one thing led to the next, and we joined Nextstar. Yeah. Um, I, I attended boot camp in 2002. And um, then uh, by 2004, Nextstar reached out to me and said, you know, would you want to join our training team? And that was, there was a specific moment at boot camp that sort of shaped that opportunity for me. We, yeah. they gave us an exercise to do. Um, I was put at a table with a group of six people, as which is the normal next star practice. You know, here you got half an hour, build a presentation on how you're going to implement this change in your business when you come back, and the rest of us mm-hmm. will evaluate and coach you and, and help you out. Brilliant exercise. And well, my group and I we horsed around for 25 of the 30 minutes. Um, did, did almost no work. And in the last five minutes, I was appointed to be the spokesperson to do the exercise. So I did, and it went really well. Um, and, um, and then I, I, I set an intention and, and there's, there's something here. This is, this is going to make its way into my book as well. Um, the power of intention. I set an intention, um, and I'll ask me about the intention, uh, with Charlton and Hill that, that I feel linked me to the position I'm in today as well. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the intention with with Nextstar was while I was sitting in that room, I sent an email to Bill Raymond, um, who's a mentor friend. I, I look up to that man uh, more than he knows. <laughs> so shout out to Bill um, and to Sherry Benefeld, who was um, an innovator and incredible training manager with Nextstar at the time. I sent a message to the two of them and I said, you know, if there's ever anything I can do to give back, to be a part of this, this was life-changing for me, you know, please tell me. That was just after boot camp. Mm-hmm. Well, two years later, they they reply to the email, essentially, mm-hmm. and say, we're building this thing called Service System, which is, as you probably know, Nextstar's, it's their baseline program. It's their, um, you know, the holy grail of all things Nextstar. And, um, and I got a chance to be involved in that at the ground floor. Yep. And um, by, you know, by January of 2005, I was training on my own, um, had, uh, had, uh, just a, an incredible time at it. And, um, that's, that's how I got started. So my, my first intersection with Nextstar was with Charlton and Hill. And then this was, this is going to be a weaving in and out that continues to happen throughout my, my career. Yeah. So we, we're, I'm training with Nextstar as a, as a side, side work, um, and managing a department at Charlton and Hill, mm-hmm. the, the HVAC department. Then over time, I left Charlton and Hill, Charlton Hill left Nextstar and, you know, now we've come full circle and, you know, I'm back with Nextstar and, and back with Charlton and Hill. So awesome. it's a, it's quite a remarkable turn of events. <laughs> Not to, you know, get into the drama, but how did Charlton and Hill feel when you were, you know, doing that, you know, training a little bit part-time and then you eventually, they lose you to Nextstar full-time. Did that create any tension? Yeah, I think they saw the writing on the wall when, when yeah. I started doing it. Um, I, I'll say this about the, the the leadership team here at Charlton Hill back then. Um, and and some of them that still I, I still have regular contact with. Um, the they afforded me the space to develop my career. Yeah. Um, the 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 mission of the company back then, as they as it was articulated to me, was we are a people development machine. Yep. And so in true form they afforded me the opportunities to go and do the thing that I was passionate about, that I was good at, that was uh, fueling me. And and every time I would go somewhere, I mean, the, you, you want to have, you want to have a PhD level education in the trades, go visit a hundred companies over or, or 500 companies over 20 right. years, you know, like you, yeah. what, what I came back with every time I visit a company was something that would tweak the dials just a little bit better and get us a little bit closer to where we needed to be. So the, the company was benefiting from me being away. Yeah. But eventually as time went on, as I left to go and, and do more next star and, and, and less Charlton and Hill, they had other people in place and it was an amical parting. 
you know, I think they were, you know, we were all kind of sorry. I didn't like to see Charlton and Hill come to an end, but, but it was a necessary transition. I think, I think I learned a whole bunch and um, yeah. Yeah. I want to put a little bookmark in this because you've brought up a concept that's been on my mind lately. I've heard some different talks about this and, and um, podcasts about this idea of, you know, retaining your top talent and what happens when you lose someone who's really good to another opportunity. And um, one of the best pieces of I want perspective on this, but one of the pieces of advice I took away from a conversation that I observed was, you know, just recognizing and being okay with the fact that not everyone is going to retire on your team. And um, that doesn't make it suck less when they leave, but just putting that on the table early and saying like, I want this to be really, really productive for you, but you may leave one day. And I hope when you leave that, you know, the company's better and you're better and that next company. So it's tough. Now, the other side of that is, Gosh, you invest so much time and trust into the into people that you train and coach and develop that are on your team, and then they take that and they leave for X. And I don't even know what question I'm asking. I just uh, as you as you think about how you talk to companies and retaining talent, retaining leadership, and then letting them go. Any thoughts or experiences or observations around that? Well, I think the tighter you try to grip people to stay, the more likely it is that they're going to be pulling away from you. Yeah. So there's some sense. Uh, of of not holding too tight mm-hmm. and leaning in entirely. Um, I I would you know this is a a great example of just being detached from outcome and it's really difficult to do as as a business owner because outcomes is what you get paid for outcomes is what what feeds your your organization to get to the next to the next level mm-hmm. um, and. I think it is incumbent on us. It's it's our responsibility as leaders to bring people into our into our mission. Know what that mission is first of all. And this is what I I think there's a you know where's a whole conversation here that we could that we could get into. The number of companies I've gone to that the mission statement is we want to be the best of something at something, being best at other things, and just let's be the best of. It's so generic and flavorless. And if you ask them, you know, okay, I want you to run, I want your mission to be so clear that you can run every decision in your business through the mission. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't make the mission, then we're not doing it, right? And so ours is support, protect, and develop the human beings and their families who've chosen to spend their time with us, right? That's what we do. And and that is a without out, without outcome mission. It's never done. We're never mm-hmm. finished. It's infinite in the in Simon Sinek's, you know, coaching on on the infinite game. There's a there's a piece of that. There's an element of that um, um, infiniteness to it, and um, and and it it sort of says we don't choose the path that a person's going to go down. But if we're going to support, protect, and develop, then the, the kind of the world is their oyster. And and I truly believe this. This is the thing that I've I've become um, uh, obsessed with creating in the people around me. Um, and and it really became clear probably in the last seven or eight years that my my mission in life personally is to teach those who teach others and you know develop those who can develop others mm-hmm. really spending my time on 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 seeing that and and I so I know my work is is working when I see others growing and developing right but it does require that you you don't I don't I don't bring somebody in and say I'm going to turn you into a manager and I don't I don't get to do that. I'm going to mine for leadership characteristics and management qualities. And if they appear and, and you do the work and you, you, you choose to go down the path, like, you know, Russell's a great example, circling back to him, right? You do the work and you choose to go down that path, then, then the world is your oyster. You'll create outcomes of your own. And so, and they may or may not include you being in my, on my, on my immediate team down the right. road. Yeah. And I have to be okay with that. And that's, that's easy to say, hard to do. Um, yeah. We have an incredible leadership team here right now. That's that's hand kind of handpicked and um, and uh, they do a, in, an incredible amount of things. And I, I imagine losing any of them, I'm you know that that gives me a little bit of heartburn. Um, but yeah. if they did, I'd wish them well. I, I, I truly would. And their their lives are not there. I mean, I would be the biggest hypocrite to say you can't ever make a, a career change. I have a couple of questions and a couple of kind of alleys I want to go down the side here. One is you said be detached from outcome as it sounded like a pretty core foundational principle to your viewpoint of business. Tell me more about that. I mean, you, you explained it really well with, as it relates to the mission, but does that apply to just other? It's in, in every aspect of your life. 
Mm-hmm. It's our attachment on outcomes that creates misery for us. Mm. So all frustration exists in the space between expectations and reality, right? Yeah. I expected this to happen. Reality was something else happened. I'm frustrated. If I don't have an expectation of what the outcome is going to be, then in a truly stoic sense, I can just accept reality as it is and then adjust how I'm going to respond to it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, in, in one of our, one of our guiding principles in uh, here at Charlton and Hill is that we, we believe in relationships first and then transactions. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific coaching piece specifically for every sales interaction that we're ever going to be into. Yeah. Right. So I never, I will never coach one of our team members, put the transaction ahead of the relationship. So what that means mm-hmm. in reality is I would rather you like me and not buy from me than buy from me and not like me. Right. And that, that flies in the face of, you know, normal business uh, objectives. We, you know, sale first, get the sale, you know, have to get the sale. And I believe that if you build the relationship first, then the outcome is more likely to be a sale. And that sale is more likely to be something that keeps a, a customer's affinity and with your customer for, with your co- company for a long time. But it's hard to live into that. Yeah, it, it is. And it's hard to build up to that. And I'm going to use the word privilege. And I feel like the word privilege is misunderstood or at least abused. But like you can do that from a position of privilege where you've built up enough respect in the market and enough operational wherewithal to be able to lose customers, right? To be able for people right. to not do that. And it's I have the same similar conversation with, I have some customers who put their pricing online, you know, on their website and they, it's really, really high pricing. And they're like, yeah, if people don't like that it's $20,000 for a system. We don't have to do business with them because they're not our, right? Um, I just, it makes, I I guess I'm making more of a statement than asking a question, but is it easier said than done? I mean, putting relationships first. I mean- It is. We, yeah. It is. And and I think there's there's two things there that um, that that apply. And, and one is that the world doesn't end today. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, for years at Nexstar, we would travel around and I would say this all the time. I was like, well, some customers are just not your customers. Mm-hmm. Not every customer is your customer. Right. And that sounds at face value, like it's probably somewhat true. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is that the moment I do that, my brain is going to take any negative interaction and apply that as my reason to get out. Yep. Right. So, I, well, of course I didn't get the sale. Not every customer is my customer. Mm-hmm. Right. But if I, if I remove them as customers and they're just human beings with whom I'm, I'm charged the responsibility of me is to go, go get that, go get a relationship going with them. Then, then I believe that every customer is my customer. Yeah. Not all of them are my customer yet. Mm-hmm. Right. So the world doesn't end today. We, we feather these, these are principles that are in the book that I'm, I'm putting together and, and you, you feather these together. And then all of a sudden you, you're putting yourself in a place that's truly powerful. And it's, and it's, and it's such low pressure. Right. Um, the, the the sales the sales process is it's just truly about like you know I want you to like me I want you to understand who we are as a company and um and and live in that space and and releasing the outcome detaching from the outcome means I I don't go in there and say above all else I must get the sale mm-hmm. and if I live into the relationships first and transactions model I'm probably going to get more sales than I ever have right. But that can't be the reason why I live into the relationships first, right? Because then we put the sale ahead, right? So it, it has right. to truly be, and this is a really difficult thing. We do this in all of our relationships um, with our kids, with our with our loved ones. So it's, it's always, there's an outcome in almost every conversation, almost every, if mm-hmm. we if we can detach from outcome, we give ourselves space to see more of the world. Um, we are, our, our minds limit us through the process of growing up to seeing mostly that which is going to harm us. Mm-hmm. We, we look for it yeah. and it's everywhere. And so we subsequently put outcomes on almost every relationship and the outcomes are something like, I'm, I'm watching out that this doesn't hurt me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to push this relationship in whatever way is necessary to get the maximum outcome for me, right? And and in so doing, we don't allow people to be who they are, and we we um we don't see as much of the world. I, th- I think we we limit ourselves in 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 the opportunities that can be presented to us because we have an outcome in mind. Right. What if the outcome that's possible is bigger than the one that you can imagine? Right. And 
I've heard you reference the concept of certainty and uncertainty and kind of how the human brain clings to certainty. Share a little bit of your perspective on that. I think that relates a lot to what you were just sharing. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, the, we, 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 as human beings, we really detest um, uncertainty. We, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it sends off all kinds of terrible signals, and we, we don't like it. Um, and, and we will make up things to create certainty, um, whether or not those things are actually creating any certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's uh, you know, the greatest example to me is is when COVID hit, lockdowns all took place. What was the one thing that was not available anywhere in the world that everyone bought immediately? It was toilet paper. Right. Like, yeah. okay, well, that makes absolutely no sense. And for those who ran out and stocked up on toilet paper, they've got really good reasons why they say, no, that made a lot of sense, why, why we did that. Right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't because if you don't have food, like pretty soon, you, you know, that's, that's going to become a more important thing pretty fast. Yeah. Right. Maybe you can sell off some of your toilet paper to people who had food. Maybe that's yeah. maybe that was a strategy. But but the but the fact was that if people could go out and get toilet paper, it represented certainty. And control, and, yeah. Yeah. And 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 it that's so illogical. Like that's not what yeah. you're gonna need in if if we can't get to grocery stores. It's not toilet right. paper you're gonna be worried about. It's just not, right? But we as again the 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 predictably irrational, if I can steal from Dan Ariely. The predictable, irrational, pre- predictably irrational uh, response of human beings to having uncertainty is to create certainty, even if it doesn't make sense. So it, it's it's as if your mind is drowning. It's the way I've always talked. If your, mount, your mind is in the water and it's drowning, it'll grab for whatever it finds, whether or not it's a life-preserving device or not, or the right thing. It's just going to grab whatever it gets and say, I'm going to hold on to this because this makes sense and this is going to give me some certainty. I'm going to go buy toilet paper because... I'm locked in my house for the next. Like, I, yeah, got, I got it. I, I do understand it, and and it's just not at the top of the list when you're logical about it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good litmus test for an individual to think back to that period of time and and try to deconstruct their relationship with what amount of toilet paper they bought and stocked. And um, yeah, not 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 that one's good or bad. Just that is how right. you're your default right. operating. Um, right. Right. You said something earlier and I'm hung on to it and I've tried to let it go and I just can't, I got to come back to it. So when you were at the boot camp with, with Nexstar early in your career and uh, you were in the group and you had 30 minutes and you screwed around for 25 minutes um, talking and then you had to, someone said, hey, you're going to be the spokesperson mm-hmm. and you had to stand up and you said that something ignited. Is that a skill? Was that a surprise? What happened when you stood in front of the room and like, I don't want to assume you had to BS 25 minutes worth of conversation, but you had to, you're on the spot. You had to put something together really quickly. Is it a skill? Um, what ignited, what happened in that moment that made you see beyond just, you know, Charlton and Hill? I think what it was, was a combination of, um, I had, uh, of some, some public speaking experience. I had, I had done some of that, you know, at a volunteer level, um, in my local church. So, yep. you know, not, not enough, certainly not enough to, to make me proficient in any sense, but I wasn't afraid to get in front of people. That's, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I had the confidence to do that. And, and the same set of skills that I had learned to sell with became extremely practical in that exact moment yep. where I could construct ideas and gain buy-in from a group fairly quickly. And that, so it's the culmination of all those things, and they just sort of came together, um, and it, you know, and, and, and it worked out. And, and I've said this, I've said this to some of my closest friends too. You know, that when I look at my career, and I'm from this tiny little town in in let's paint a picture for people in the world where, where I am in the world, the the city I'm in, Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, we're, we're most famous for a, a big train bridge and a, a restaurant in a water tower. <laughs> You can look that up, and it's it's kind of fun. So, and then and among other things, it's a hundred thousand people. And if you draw a line from the Montana border north, about six, about a sixty minute drive, that's that's where I am. Oh. South of Calgary, Calgary's a big city, and we're in the middle of we're in the middle of you know the bald prairie out here, an hour from the mountains. And um, how in the world do I have the opportunity to stand in front of people? And I've I've, been, I've traveled to all but two U.S. states. Wow. Um, had the privilege of standing in front of you know tens of thousands of human beings. And have and have some kind of an impact. And what I have under, come to understand is that I am I am not a source, and I I don't I don't deserve to have the gift that I have. But I have somehow been afforded this ability in my life that I I, I can't I, I will never say that I earned it or that I deserved it, but I have it. 
and I feel extremely responsible to it. Um, and that is an ability to articulate an idea and to and to to win a crowd. And this is part of why the book suddenly came around for me this year. Um, I've I've been promising, and my friends will know this. I've been promising to write a book for a long time, and you know, started and stopped and, and did a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm I'm a I'm a well over I'm almost halfway into that now, having written it. And the problem I had with writing the book, I, I think I'm coming around to your answer in a long, long mm-hmm. way. Um, <laughs> the the problem I had with writing the book was that I that I believe the the old uh, proverb that says, and there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, every idea that's been articulated has been articulated before. Somebody else yeah. has said what I've said. And you know, you, you find this to be true. There's all kinds of examples I could give of that. And oh, yeah. so I kind of felt like, what do I have to say? I don't really have anything new to say. I'm regurgitating ideas from others. I've, I've read a book a week for 25 years, and that has shaped a whole bunch of my thinking, but it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm a translator of others' ideas in a yeah. sense, but not an originator. I don't know that anyone has original thought. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we do. Um, I just feel like everything I'm going to say, somebody's going to say, oh yeah, I already knew that. I already said that. I, this has already been done. Yeah. And so, so I, I shied away from the idea of writing a book until I finally heard someone say to me something that ignited the fire in me to say, I, I got to put this in writing. Mm-hmm. He said, yes, you're right. Other people have said this stuff before, but the way you said it to me, Dan, made sense. Mm-hmm. And I got it for the first time. Yeah. Right. And so, and so it, it's in my mind equally true that there's nothing new under the sun. And that there are no two human beings whose sum total of their life experience is the same. So the filter through which we interpret and repeat those ideas makes those ideas appear to feel different and new. And if, and if that's what I've been given is, is some kind of a different way of looking at those things and articulating them in a way that makes sense to somebody that they haven't seen it before, then I, then I feel like it's a responsibility to, to get that out on, you know, get those ideas out in, in writing and out to the world. Yeah. And a very superficial comment, but like, there's a lot of wisdom out there that is shared that like, I, I read a lot. I listen a lot. I'm very curious, but I've got this thick skull and there's even things you've said on this conversation today. They're really profound that I'm going to need someone to help get through my thick skull to apply to my normal life. Um, and I want to come back to that because I'm hung on, I'm hung up on two more things before I want to talk to the last two, the last two things I want to talk to you about are, um, I want to talk about the, uh, you know, going back into the business, what that was like. I have some very specific questions and I want to talk mm-hmm. about the book, but, and what you're yep. up to, but, um, two things I'm hung up on one again, very superficial. What two States, if you remember, have you not been to in the U S Arkansas and Alaska, Arkansas and Alaska. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Well that, that yeah. makes sense, man. There are some really good companies in Arkansas. We can check that off. There are us. and Alaska um, yep. and We're Alaska. Gonna... Sorry. Pardon me. Yep. Um, well, I'm glad you knew that. Um, the last thing I'm kind of stuck on is you talked about your, um, you know, your gift or your ability to communicate an idea, um, articulate it well, get buy-in. And then you talked about the exercise of like implementation. So I know very few people with all three of those skills. And I think probably very high performing CEOs are really good at that. Um, I know some, I can name some people. I'm not good at the latter. How do you, how do you take something from an, a perfectly articulated idea that has buy-in and consensus and inspires, but get it actually implemented into the business? It's a, what a great question. It's it, this took me a long time to get here as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I spent a lot of time talking about ideas, and mm-hmm. I feel like my career really took off as a trainer. I got comfortable in my own skin when I had accomplished a few things, when I had failed at a few things and, and then learned from them and then accomplished a few things where, where suddenly I understood where the rubber hit the road because, you know, in, there's a thing we call seminar land, you know, you come into a training and it's the seminar land and everything is wonderful. And the, and the, and the customers are all, you know, super cooperative and they do exactly what you would expect them to do. And, and then we, and we train from that perspective, right? Seminar land. And you get back in the real world and it's like, well, and nobody does it because it doesn't work. And so it was, it was a, a forcing of 
bringing seminar land into real world application and putting those two things together that said, okay, if we can't do this, if we can't physically do this, then I'm not going to train it. Yep. And, and, and so, um, I'll, I'll give, I'll give Keith Mercurio credit for, for this as well. You know, a, a huge force in my life. Um, we actually had a, a, a conversation just a few days ago okay. and, um, and you know, he was instrumental. He was, he's magnificent at this, at finding application and saying, this is what you need to do in mm-hmm. order to bring that, bring that stuff around. And, and, um, and putting the boots to ideas that were in, you know, okay, that sounds good in theory, but is that actually going to work? Is that right. actually true? Can we actually do it? You know, some of these ideas sell well in front of the room and mm-hmm. they'll inspire and motivate and, and jack people up until they try them once and they don't work. Right. right. And so what we ended up with that next star, and this is the model is with that service system. When we started training it, we would train it and have them practice, have the participants practice. Mm-hmm. Um, through Keith's leadership at the training team at Nexar over those years where he and I spent all that time together, um, he he made it an imperative that as a trainer, if you can't model the service system perfectly in front of the room, you're not a trainer, yeah. right? And so and so he you know he he put he insisted on putting action to to those words, and I've taken that same concept and that's how I implement here it, at, at Charlton and Hill. If we have an idea and we have a concept, then it becomes an action plan and it gets delegated or assigned to someone and there's a name on it and there's a date on it. And every, every week in our leadership meeting, we come back to it or whatever leading, whatever meeting rhythm that shows up, um, it gets checked on and it gets, and it gets brought back around, but it's, and it's, and then now it's, you know, keeping thousands of lists and knowing where your lists are and knowing what you're checking against and, and are we moving the needle on these things? You know, I've heard it said a thousand times that business is a game of whack-a-mole and, and it truly feels like it. Mm-hmm. You deal with one thing, you get it solved, and then something else pops up. And by the time you finish dealing with that one, the first thing is back up again, and you're you know yeah. kind of jumping back and forth in between these things. So, so getting a communication rhythm in place where these ideas are are not just articulated, but they're committed to, and then mm-hmm. followed up on, is all part of that implementation process. You can't just talk about doing it once and say, okay, now everybody get out, get out there and do it because it, it may happen once or twice that day, and then it's just done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do you use software to track that or spreadsheets or what does that look like? Over the I years? have, I have a really um, elaborate system. So I, I use, I use motion for my calendar, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of AI built into it. Um, I like it for a handful of reasons. I use um, a combination of the notes app on my iPhone, the Apple native notes app. Mm-hmm. Um, I use Microsoft OneNote. And that's where I do a lot of robust tracking. So when I've got all my coaching clients, I've got their own files, their time and date stamped. And every time I'm having a call, I'm working with someone, I've got my notes and you know, um, to-dos, follow-ups are all logged in there. And I can always come back to that. So that's that's more of a holding tank for, um, for note-taking for those sorts yeah. of things. But my notes in my phone is just like, you know, hey, don't forget this. You know, anytime I got an idea, so, uh, here's a task I need to get done. It just goes on one of the lists. Yep. I have one list whose title is do. That's it. It's, these are things I got to do. I haven't sorted them yet. I don't know who's doing them, when they're doing, getting done. They're just, this is, these are actions that got to get done. Right? Yep. Call got that it. vendor, deal with this software issue, you know, buy that thing, whatever they are. I don't, you know, it's just do. <laughs> so, so this is a, a good transition into the next quick segment of this conversation. You know, you go back, so you travel the country, you meet hundreds, if not thousands of contractors, you're on stage, you're a subject matter expert, people are paying you for your advice on how to run their business. And then you go to run the prodigal son move of going back and, and going to Charlton and Hill and running that business. What were the things you were that you knew in theory, but pract- you know, the, didn't have the practical experience for? Were there any surprises when you got back in the seat on the contracting side that you weren't ready for? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say it's way harder to do it than to train it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, all the, because I mean, I, I, I had a hand in development in, you know, a, a bazillion programs at, at Nextar over the years. And I, as a result, I got to sit with some of the best install managers, you know, subject matter experts on on that particular on on sales, on service, on, on call center, and I've so I've seen that from the inside on the on the training component of how do we train this so it's a repeatable way. So I, I know that stuff inside out and backwards. I can get up and do a, a training meeting with my team with no notes, and you know, and it's and it's on point, and I and I get it. Um, but then 
seeing it through to implementation and actually putting those pieces in place. Um, something as simple as the daily huddle mm-hmm. took me over a year to get that implemented properly. Yeah. And then it changed the course of the business, right? It was like, okay, this is why we teach it because we know what it does, but it was way harder to get it, get it impl- implemented than, than I was, and you know, it's, it's not just, well, you start tomorrow and you do it. And well, we did that. And then we stumbled and then we missed some and it, what we weren't, didn't see real value in it because we weren't doing it correctly. And, and until we finally did, you know, and then, and then it took off, then that, that changed it. And then our leadership meeting, you know, implementing an L10, which I knew needed to happen immediately. We did, we, you know, kind of stop and start a few times. And, and I think that's sort of a pattern for how I've done implementations in my business. As I see an idea, I say, this is something that we need to get done. I know that it needs to get done. And then we sort sort of start and stop for a period of time. That's anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to a year until it gets traction. And then it just yeah. goes. Yeah. And then once you're there, then you free yourself up for the next level of, of thinking and of opportunity. It's not to make this about myself, but I was, I'm, I have very similar patterns of start, stop, start, stop. And I just, um, am working with one of my team members to make sure that his job is to make sure that we never stop. That when I go down another rabbit hole, we're, whatever we started stays and, uh, we're a couple weeks into it and it's amazing. And, and it's awesome. his skill set. It's, it's amazing. Um, talk to me about the construct of your daily huddle. So it's, it's a fairly detailed, um, daily huddle. And we, we start really from call center. You know, how many calls did we have yesterday? Mm-hmm. And we kind of break that down by department. And then this we is, go, who's in the meeting, how long, what time, all that kind of stuff. This too. is uh, 9 30 AM every day and it's church. You don't miss it. <clears throat> okay. Yep. Right. So our, our, uh, the team who reports, um, each department leader reports their own numbers in this. So they've gone into the spreadsheet ahead of times. It sits in mm-hmm. teams. So it's in a shared drive essentially. And uh, everybody goes into it. You don't don't come to the huddle without your numbers. Don't don't be late to the huddle. Don't you know? Like this is this is holy ground. Um, Nine thirty a.m. We start, and um, we uh, we have a call center manager, a dispatcher, um, all the other managers are in the room. Um, accounting is in the room, and um, um, and we do open it up. I have sometimes I've got other other companies, people that I'm coaching will will jump in and they'll come and and watch observe. So that's fun. Had some mm-hmm. next door coaches come in and observe and. And even them, they've had, you know, some really good feedback and, and helped us with it. So, so it's a team of five to seven people on any given day. Yep. And then we go through and we, each department reports on a, on a series of what are the most important metrics that we're dealing with at the time. And the whole point of the huddle is to win the day, right? Mm-hmm. What yep. are all the opportunities that are in front of us? What did the budget say we were going to do? And what are we actually going to do? And, and they all set each day, they set commitments and, um, and our, our goal is then now to hit those commitments now. So now we do everything we got to do. We communicate that with the team. You know, if you've got a handful of technicians in your department and your, and your goal for the day, your, your win the day number is 10 grand. Everybody needs to bring 2000, whatever the number is, you know, I've been making these up. Um, now we communicate that across and then we update and we, you know, and, and it's amazing. It's the, the old, the old axiom that what gets managed, what gets measured gets managed. Right. Um, and that's really what we're doing. And, as time has gone on, we've we've modified some of the things that we have in the huddle. That you know, it changes from time to time, right? We uh, we had to, I added I added um, accounts receivable by department. Okay, so you know, HVAC service department brought in twelve thousand dollars yesterday. Great. Um, of that, how much did they collect? Well, we got ten thousand. What was what was uncollected revenue? It was two thousand. Okay, so now and and everyone knows you put two thousand in the uncollected revenue. We're going to ask questions. What happened? Where is it? Where are we going to get it? And we took our AR from 150,000 down to like, it, it floats around 20,000 now. Nice. Right? Yeah. Most of that's fairly current. None of it's, none of it's a risk. None of it's we're even concerned about. And that's just by daily attention to the metrics that matter. And for other companies, that might not be an issue. They've got it dialed in and AR isn't a thing. They don't, they don't care. Then I wouldn't put it in their huddle. Mm-hmm. Right. But then what are the things that you need to track? And, how long does the meeting usually last? Yeah, minimum twenty minutes is, is what it takes. Um, twenty to thirty is typically what it what it is. Got it. Once a month, it's an hour because in that hour we will set commitments for the next month. Got it. Good. Um, so you mentioned coaching clients. That's a perfect transition to the next. By the way, is that a vanilla latte? What's your What's your go to iced coffee there? This is a um, uh, iced. 
iced brown sugar oat oh, shaken nice. espresso. There you go. Solid. And, oh yeah, you're it's still you um, yeah, you've got plenty of time to still uh, metabolize that because it's what time out there? I don't know, one o'clock. Yeah, yeah. it's one. Two um, two thirty, yes. Yeah, it's, I can't it's I, it's delicious. I can't fool around <laughs> with that stuff past one o'clock or I'm uh Is that I'm right? Staying up. Oh, I'm staying up solving all the world's problems at bed and when it's bedtime. Um credit to my uh, to my beautiful Emily who turned me on to this. Nice, very good. Um you know what's funny? I'm gonna do a little sidebar here. I'm gonna shout out uh, you know, I'm going to call this guy out, Chris Yano. I'm calling you out. So he always made fun of me because I would drink a latte, coffee, and milk. And he would get, relentlessly make fun of me about drinking a latte. <laughs> but he would drink coffee with creamer. And I'm like, dude, it's what? the same thing. It's just a different word for hot milk. And uh, that always, anytime I, I see a latte, I always think of Chris and think like, unnecessarily made fun of me for that. So anyways, <laughs> sidebar, that look that looks like a... A wonderful coffee. It's um, delicious. It's delicious. <laughs> so you mentioned bringing your coaching clients on. So you're 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 back home. You're running the business, and you're writing a book. You've got clients. So who are you coaching for, and what are you doing, and how all's, how's all that shaping out, and where are you taking that? Well, that's a yeah. Um, it's a fun. the The coaching world is is probably I do it at my company. It's my role in my own company as well. Right. The only thing I functionally do in the company now is marketing. Mm -hmm. um, everything else is handled by my my general manager, um, Dave, uh, who does an incredible job of it, doing a, a, a job interview outside my office as we're recording this. You know, nice. um, and um, and so what I do, what I, what I again is back to my life's mission is I teach those who teach others, and, mm -hmm. I, and I know that this is why I'm on the planet to do this. And so I have I have through a series of different circumstances. In fact, one of them. A couple of my coaching clients came to me by way of Chris Yano's podcast. When you and Chris were both on it mm -hmm. and you interviewed Keith. Right. Yep. He got a bunch of people reach out to him, say, Hey, can you do some coaching for us? And he and he he punted a couple of them to me. He's like, Hey, Dan, wow. these are these guys are perfect for you. So shout out to my boys, my Achaean brothers, uh, the Achaeans in uh Boston. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great. I know um, Steve incredible incredible guys um i've been i've been you know best friends with them now for a couple of years they look like my sons you know they have the same haircut and and uh and beard situation good, <laughs> good people i've yeah i've been able they to are. kind of observe the things not knowing you were coaching them i've seen their transformation in their business and how they're leading their team and what that looks like and i can see it so that's really well, cool and and you know what's what was really fun about them is um when they i i tried to i tried to get them to fire me before they hired me <laughs> Right. I was like, you know, so I know you guys are coming to me. They asked me for leadership development coaching. I was like, I'm yeah. not touching your business. I don't care about your business. Your business go bankrupt. I don't care. That's not why if, if we're doing this, we're doing it for your leadership development sake. I mean, yeah. and then the end result is that their business took off. Right. <laughs> right. Which, which I knew would be the outcome, but if we got them focused on that, then that's the wrong outcome to get focused on. So, and, and, and I also told them right off the hop and they'll tell you this, Steve and Alex, they'll tell you this. I'm not going to help you lead anybody. Not, not until you figure out who you are in this world. Mm -hmm. so we're going to spend the first three months, six months, year looking in the mirror, if that's what we got to do, mm -hmm. until we get you to a place where where you as a leader are worth following and you're following yourself, mm -hmm. right? You've led yourself to a place. Um, I won't, I, otherwise, you know, I, you know, I do, I, I, I've, I've worked alongside Robert Cialdini for an event with Nexstar. I mean, I've, I've studied influence and persuasion and I know how to do all of that stuff. And it's dangerous. These skills in the hands of an unethical person are, are, are extremely dangerous because they're effective. You don't mm -hmm. have to be ethical to be persuasive. And so, and so with Steve and Alex, that's, you know, I, I basically said, you know, if that's what you're wanting and you know, you, you should just probably not sign up and like, no, no, that's exactly what we want. And of course, the more, the more I pushed back, the more they, they leaned in. And so, um, and so we, we, uh, we settled on that and, and, and we did, we spent a year doing nothing but but working on on their development as human beings, and I got to tell you that those are, are two men who you know shout out to to my boys. Um, they did the work. I mean, mm -hmm. I I couldn't throw hard enough material at them that they that they would that they would back off of it. They just did the work. Yeah. Um, some some very emotional times we had together, and I had the privilege of being in Boston for um, that would have been April eighth of twenty twenty two in Boston with with Steve and Alex uh, for what was Alex's birthday and the company's five-year anniversary kind of simultaneously mm -hmm. that weekend. Um, and that was, uh, that was amazing. So um, 
uh, what was the question? Let's go back to the question again. Uh, um, how you got into to coaching yeah. and, and clients and where you were taking that. That's- yeah. So, so some of it was just as a result of all the years I've spent um, traveling the country and all the contacts and the people that I've had, had an impact on, they, they reach out and they, um, they follow up to me. Um, a couple of them through, through Keith, the way that that has uh, the way that the way the Achaeans uh, came to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then now it just seems like there, this is, this thing is getting legs and it's going further and it's, um, I'm, I'm getting calls from obscure sources that have been, you know, third party referred to me in some way. And, yeah. and, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to, starting to, to, to consider what the, what the future of this looks like, you know, how, how many, what kind of clients am I going to take on? And, you know, um, most of the individual work, the one-on-one that's, that's, I got very limited space for that. Um, sure. Yeah. handful of people that I, that I'd still do that with, but, um, yeah, just some working with some companies, some leadership teams and building leadership development content and, you know, helping them grow organizations by, by developing leaders. It's probably the number one thing that changes the course of a business is Mm -hmm. the focus on leadership development. Yep. How did you land on your personal mission? Was it apparent to you or did it take some work to really like define it? The teach those who teach others. Yeah. So this goes all the way back to, um, I, I was, I was quite young. I was, I was early teens and it's, and it's, it's a biblical reference. So I was, uh, you know, when I, when I was still in the, in my church days, um, I had, uh, I was studying, I was doing some teaching out of, out of, uh, out of the new Testament. And there's a spot where Paul is talking to Timothy in the book of Ephesians. Mm-hmm. And he says to him, um, teach, teach those, teach faithful men who will teach others, right? And this stuck with me. So Paul's handing Timothy this church and saying, teach those who teach others. And for some reason that just stood out to me and I highlighted it and, and it became, and so it's second Timothy two, two. And it's actually, this is a, a, a railroad watch that was uh, my dad's given mm-hmm. to me. And um, I had it, this, I had this etched into it. Second Timothy is two, two. And it's, you know, that's, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a guiding star for me. It's my, it's my, uh, it's my true North. You know, when, when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm in my happy place and it takes all kinds of shape and, and forms, right? It doesn't, doesn't require to be on a stage. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't require to, you know, like I, I would hope that in some sense, perhaps some of the lessons, some of the, some of the little snippets that we've shared here today have, have taught those and people can take these and please shamelessly steal and share and, you know, pretend you've authored them. That's I'm, I'm good with all of the above, you know, <laughs> Just teach others, you know, pass it on. Do you, and you made reference to this a few moments ago, so I'll take the question a little bit further, but do you see yourself really wanting to scale your influence? Maybe back to, you, you mentioned not wanting necessarily to be on stage, but, um, you know, having a broader influence. Obviously you have a book, you do some one-on-one, but what does that next phase of teaching others look like? I think that, I think that more of this is going to take, take itself to the stage. Yeah. I think um, the uh, I'm, I'm getting some um, uh, some opportunities to to um, to do some stage work to put some of these leadership lessons into into practice and yeah. and um, calling getting called to some keynotes here and there and and uh, and that's that's a lot of fun I really enjoy that and um, that always you know broadens the reach and I've got people come up to me afterwards and you know and then we become social media friends or or whatever and 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 I will and I'll get people you know drop into my, uh, my inbox on my, my Facebook messenger and ask a question and, and, and poke at some things. And I've had some just, you know, I've, I've had a couple of opportunities where, um, people have just reached out randomly like that in, in, in the middle of a personal life crisis and said, Hey, you know, can mm-hmm. I, can I talk to you? And I'll just pick up the phone and, and we'll talk to him. So that's a, that's a very, um, granular one-on-one sort of, and temporary, you know, just being in a moment for, for somebody who I, I, I remember, but don't know well, right. Is sure. in a room with me somewhere. Um, and I think that where this is, where this is going is that, um, that I'll, I'll, I'll get more opportunities to, to spread this from the stage, take, take more keynote opportunities. Um, I'm working on, I'm working on transitioning some more of my time, um, south of the border. So I'm going to be spending spending a little bit more time on, on American soil and, you know, and, and spreading my wings there a little bit okay. as well. And, and yeah, I think if I was to just, you know, say, what was my life look like in, in five to 10 years is I'd, I'd be traveling around doing some keynotes and, 
kind of taking it a little bit more easy and, you know, have, have a business here that's growing, that's doing well um, with which I still have influence and, and, and have a leadership role and a team who's really uh, doing amazing things here. Uh, we're going to build a hundred million dollar uh, Western Canada empire. So wow. um, out of this tiny little town. So, you know, that's coming. <laughs> Good for you. Well, um, the book, when do you anticipate the book being ready? September of 2024. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've hired a, a great publishing company, several rounds of editing. I just had it done professionally. The last thing I want is, is one of those, you know, thin little, Hey, this is my first try at writing a book kind okay. of feeling books. I, I kind of, this is, this is my life's, this is my life's work up to yeah. this point. And, and I, and I wanted to honor that. And, um, that if someone is going to bother to take the time to read it, that, uh, it's worth every moment of their time. Good. So between now and then, and between now and someone being able to engage with you at a, an event that, you know, may or may not be happening in the next year or so, um, how do you recommend people get in touch with you or, um, you know, just stay, stay connected to your message? Well, I, the, uh, the, I, I guess for now I'll, I'll throw out an email address, um, for them to reach out to me at, um, and that's going to be Dan first name at freezensweb.com. So it's F-R-I-E-S-E-N-S-W-E-B.com. Shoot me an email there and then I can, um, I can filter that's got in my, my communication filters will help me sort that sort through those. And, <laughs> and I it truly, I, I, anyone is welcome to reach out to me and we can talk through, um, whatever needs to be talked through. Thank you for listening to the Change Your Filter podcast. I hope this podcast today was valuable for you. If you liked this podcast, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and write a review. And if you have an idea of a guest or a topic, leave it in the notes of our YouTube feed. If you are interested in learning more about Contractor Commerce, go to contractorcommerce.com, click learn more, and my team will hook you up.